Hey everybody, this is Kevin Eslin, and you are listening to another episode of Folk Stories. In this podcast, I have conversations with people I find fascinating. We'll do a deep dive into their personal history, we'll go over their narratives and lessons, and we'll talk about the work that they're currently engaged in. My guest today is Janica Lohr, creative director of Amazon's Retail Experience Concept Lab. The Concept Lab is a department that looks three to five years ahead and explores potential retail experiences that might be possible in that time. Janet is all about working at the intersection of emerging technologies and design, and her past gigs include being an executive producer at Zombie VR Studios, where they made their first VR-exclusive computer game called Locus, and as speech director of Microsoft's Advanced Strategies and Research, where she worked on long-term strategy for the company. In 2015, Janet and her husband bought the Gosley, a historic building in the Beacon Hill district of Seattle that started its life as a Gosley store in 1929. They have turned this space into a creative space where they regularly host events, exhibits, and performances. In today's podcast, we talk about Janet's path into technology and design. We talk about the creative process and what it means to evaluate art, and we talk about the Gosley and why staying small can still be awesome. And now, without any further ado, I give you Janet Galore. Janet, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Something I'm always really interested in is for people who um, go into artistic fields but started off in a more scientific background or studied mm. sciences in college. And I noticed you went to university pursuing a pure mathematics degree, mm-hmm. um, and now you've had a career of in art. And I'm curious, first of all, like what um, inspired you to get into mathematics and then how did that lead into art? Okay, sure. Um, I guess if you're, I think it's interesting that you're starting with the formal education because I actually see the interest starting really when I was little. Um, My mom was an actress and my father worked at Boeing. He was a technician in the wind tunnel. And so um, I always had, and my mom was very artistic in other ways too, um, although very humble and never really called herself that. Um, And so I always had both sides growing up and I really loved both art and science. And and so actually when I started school, I wasn't sure at all what I was gonna do. And I started thinking, oh, I might get an art degree. And then um, I started at Whitman College and only spent a semester there, and it was my first time away from home, and I just needed to restart more for social reasons. And so I came back home and was going to try and decide what to do. And some friends were tutoring at North Seattle Community College, and um, I'm like, well, I'm just going to go take some classes there. And if, especially if you're not sure what you want to do, I think it's great. And the classes were small. They had PhDs teaching the classes. And I had never been really great at math, but um, I think partly because of how it's taught. Uh, and I, w- I was never, I think I also was sort of conformed to that feminine socialization of, oh, yeah, I'm not that, you know, girls just aren't that great at math. Um, I did like biology a lot in high school and other things like that. But so anyway, when, when I was at North Seattle, I just I thought, well, I want to keep my options open. 
And so I, I took some math classes and encountered um, a teacher in calculus. And he was one of those teachers, it's kind of the classic story, where he wasn't uh, sticking to the curriculum. He was talking about the history. He was talking about you know Galois having sword fights and writing all this stuff on the board that wasn't part of the book. And one day he wrote, um, we were doing Infinite Series, and um, the Infinite Series are really weird because and when you sum up something forever, it converges often. Sometimes it doesn't, but it converges to a number sometimes and or a function. And, uh, and he wrote an equation on the board that was um, represented by Infinite Series, and it turned out to be Euler's identity, which is um, e to the i pi plus 1 equals 0. Yeah, I think some people call it the most beautiful equation. It is. It's, and, you know, okay, so you can prove this by looking at all the infinite series and what they sum up to. And so the weird thing is the proof doesn't really help you understand why. But the fact, like, he wrote that down, and I had never, ever seen anything like that before where everything that had been taught to us separately oh now it's time for trigonometry now it's time for logarithms now here's complex numbers they're completely considered separately right um, geometry and things with pi so like to have an equation where everything hymns crashing together I'm like oh wow there's okay there's something really really deep going on here that has not been touched on in all the years I've been taking math so anyway, I and then I talked to him afterwards, and um, we he also talked about um, uh, Gödel, who's a mathematician who was actually a logician, and and um, we started looking a, a little bit about the the origins of mathematics, um, and like Russell and Whitehead kind of trying to go back to basics and saying, hey, if we start with set theory and logic, can we build up mathematics, and and is it really consistent? Um, and is it complete? And and so Gödel's theorem talks about it's it's amazing, right? There's all these paradoxes that come up. It's very much like um, you know Alice in Wonderland type stuff. And, um, and it's a really great book. Um, uh, Gödel Escherbach yes. like, goes into yeah. I actually uh, re- I bought it again recently to reread it because uh, it's such a beautiful thing. And you know, so basically Gödel's theorem says that. In, in logic, and which mathematics is, is a logical system, there are certain statements you can make using the language of that system, but they cannot be proven true using that, that system. However, they are true. And there's this notion that there's always something more, no matter what, how well carefully you define a system. Maybe it, it's consistent, that's great, but it's not complete. And this notion that there's no even like I've I've always thought like as a human being, you know we we have limited senses and and I, I don't believe that we can um, know everything there is, but this is saying even in the most you know the only place where you can prove anything absolutely true, you still don't know everything ever, ever it's impossible to, and like. That's just so captivating. And so I, I had to, like, I wanted to keep studying it. It was mainly for those reasons. Um, so long-winded story, but that's, that's what drew me into mathematics. 
I think that's fascinating. And so I think you're referring to Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Yeah. And what I've heard, and I have a bunch of friends who are math majors too, is that it's somewhat of a spiritual experience yeah. for uh, math majors because you base a study on logic yeah. and then here's something proved in your own logic that says that no matter what you do, it will never be enough because there will always be something that you can't prove. Yeah. Um, and I think, I don't know, like to me that always seems like you can take it, like everything I guess in multiple ways. Like one way of taking that is like, well, then why am I doing this? Like, I can't prove, like, it's incomplete. I can never do this. Or I think, like, another way, which I think is closer to what you were talking about, is just this idea that there's always, like, more. Yeah, it's open. Um, and, I mean, I mean, if, they, if it had, they had realized that the system of mathematic or mathematical logic was inconsistent, okay, then that, that's a problem, right? But, but they didn't. It is consistent, and so there's this kind of notion of bootstrapping. And, and act, as you learn higher mathematics, it really feels like that. You, you ha- learn the principles, and it's very much like um, a language. It is a language. And, um, and it's also all these co- this complex machinery that you learn, and you develop tools, and, and then you prove new things. And, and so this idea of bootstrapping and building on what you've known, and you just keep learning more and more, improving more and more, um, to me, it feels very open, and it so. Uh, yet, yeah, I, actually, when I when I learned about that when I was younger, this is I guess you know, I was probably around twenty. Um, I was like, oh, this is great! I can break it all open. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna disprove all of mathematics, right? Like you, <laughs> you know. Um, and even though I wasn't able to do that, like, because I, I don't know, I was, I always feel Still like so working at it, yeah. <laughs> There, well, because there's the other side where it's the um, a-logical or like the the side um, of pursuing the truth through art rather than through science that I'm also really really passionate about, and so um, you know I I feel like you don't have to abandon one or by all accounts it doesn't seem like you've done that in your career, and that's something I want to get into. Um, so after. Uh, university, you were studying math, and then I believe your first job was at a zombie VR studios. Yeah, um, I I did do actually I did some other work before then um, because I I did just leave grad school very abruptly. Uh, I I realized um, I I was getting more and more distracted, and I wasn't studying very well for my preliminary exams, which you have to pass to continue in the PhD track, and. Um, I, I wanted to do more art, and I kind of just ran away. And so I didn't... Um, I've had that cup happen a couple times in my life where I just com- did a big pivot. And uh, so so then when I was settling into something new, I had some temp jobs, but I was um, also talking, like, early Internet <laughs> on message boards, um, and one was Dot Virtual World. And I was really, really interested in, in virtual reality. And so I was friends with some people, and they said they're moving to Seattle um, from um, their, their research um, in New Jersey where they were running military sims, and they wanted to start a game company. So I said, hey, I'll just show you around. We can get a beer. It wasn't like I wanted a job. Um, but when... I met them. Um, this was um, Mark Lawn um, and Joanna Alexander. They they said, "Hey, do you want to come be a video game producer?" And I'm like, "What is that? 
really? And it was an amazing opportunity because they um, actually did this with a lot of young people and mostly women um, who had a lot of potential they saw but were not proven, and they gave us mentors and resources, and so we started um, designing video games. And um, I was paired with um, a woman uh, who was the lead programmer, and we designed, we were both kind of math geeks, and so we designed a game called Locus. Um, that was the first um, computer game that was designed from the ground up for VR ever. All of the other games at that point had been adaptations of like Doom. Um, but this had like six degrees of freedom, and we were experimenting with a lot of like different input devices and four speed back joysticks and 3D audio. And, um, and it, so it was in that job where I'm like, wait, what? Like, I can, there's jobs where you, you can solve things that are kind of, kind of unknown. You're working with emerging technology. You're working with experts, but they're, and they're, they think very differently from you. We can work in groups together and make stuff that n- none of us could have done alone. Like, that's, oh my gosh, that's what I want to do. And I, I, don't, I think I was really lucky to have one of my first jobs to kind of find identify with that thread that I wanted to maintain. Um, I think there are a lot of different ways to accomplish that, but that idea of kind of mixing both the analytical and the science with creative um, works and then in small teams. Something and you mentioned in the, in the beginning of your response is walking away from your graduate degree mm-hmm. and doing a total pivot. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Do you remember, were there any specific events that triggered, actually, this isn't for me, I'm just going to walk away from this, or is it more a series of small little things? That- mm. Yeah. I think, so, you know, I got my undergrad degree, and it, I felt like it wasn't done like and there was just I was just getting started and that it's true it's almost like there's a secret society in mathematics where you have to put in or maybe an apprenticeship or something where you have to put in years of work before they even start showing you the really really cool stuff and so that that was kind of my motivation to go to grad school it wasn't I didn't have like a career in mind at all it was very much I would just I wanted to keep thinking this way and learning more about this um, and kind of exploring that philosophy. And I had in the back of my mind, boy, it would be really cool to, like, maybe I could get a job at a research institution and, like, you know, do all these crazy things. And I, so I think part of my departure was it took me a while to realize, um, and I imagine this is typical for a lot of young people when they really start trying something. You, have, you imagine what it's going to be like and, and how good you're going to be at it. And what I realized is when I had, was studying with my cohort of um, colleagues, like what a really gifted person in mathematics is like. And it's not me, not me at all. Um, there was also that, there definitely was sexism too and kind of feeling like, I was battling uphill um, to prove myself as a female, but but that was in com- also comparison to my other dear friends who were grasping things at such a deeper level without nearly as much effort. Um, and, and I realized that more and more in order to be successful, I had to focus in a way that like I wasn't comfortable. I wanted to always, 
I'm, I'm curious about everything. And I would have, I felt like I would be giving up big parts of myself to be able to even, you know, get through it um, in a way that my colleagues, actually, later on, after talking to them, they're like, well, yeah, it took me six more years. And, and I feel like I'm super happy with what I'm doing. And, you know, a lot of them are happy too, but I don't know having the PhD matters that much. But um, so, so it was that slow realization and, and the fact that, you know, I, I was really having a hard time studying. And then um, I had taken some incompletes, and I think that's a symptom, right? And the school said, well, because I was also teaching classes um, and getting stipends for that. And they said, since you had incompletes and you didn't take enough credits, technically, that you have to pay us back the money. And I'm like, mm, okay, I'm out. Mm. That's it. So is that little, you know, that little uh, needle or the the straw on the camel <laughs> that um, when the debt collector comes in? Yeah, it was just feeling. I was feeling less and less like that. I and I realized too, like if I had stayed, okay. So what what's at the end of that road for me? Right, it wasn't working at a cool place like Bell Labs. Yeah, it was you know me. Uh, the other thing I, I realized is that the academic culture isn't. I, I didn't really enjoy it. Um, there was, I feel like, a lot of kind of weird solo competition, and also there's a lot of um, subjective um, ideas about like what's the good thing to study or prove things in. And there's you're kind of limited, and if you if you decide to go against that grain, you're not rewarded for it at all, and you, and you may not be successful. So I felt like oh, I'm just going to be looking at. You know, battling for some tenure track position at some little school that I didn't decide to be in in some town that I, I you know, like that's not for me. And when I uh, was preparing for this interview, I was looking at your uh, the places that you've worked mm-hmm. and the work that you've done. And you definitely don't strike me as a person that you know fits into one particular box. I mean, yeah. I've there's freelancing Honolulu. There's being um, part of Microsoft's executive speech program. There's doing uh, things from all these different angles. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering when you look back um, at the various positions, goals, and places that you worked at, is there anything like what stood out, or like what's um, like a couple of moments that you're especially proud about, or mm. wanting to call? Sure. Let's see. Um. Well, I certainly I'm really proud of of the work that that we all did at Zombie and like what that company was, and I think um, it ended up you know changing hands and, and evolving. But I think I, I actually take that philosophy with me now um, as an older person with some resources, and especially in the arts, and even um, at work here um, at Amazon. I'm I as a creative director. That, that idea that um, you know you can somebody might have a lot of potential but just not have demonstrated it yet and with the right creative atmosphere and the right um, kind of a mix of that kind of like the safety to fail and safety to experiment it's incredibly powerful and and it can really unleash um, people so that's one thing um, and I think, I guess that the other thing I would call out of all the things I've been doing um, 
was my time at Microsoft working um, for the chief research and strategy officer at the time um, and with a um, um, person who's, who's also my friend still, Peter Haynes, um, learning to write with Peter. I mean, I was a pretty good writer. Um, I always did better in, in writing in English than I did in math <laughs> in terms of testing. Um, and uh, so I, I decided I had been doing prototyping with them and um, working for this chief research and strategy officer where his, his role was to lead long-term technology strategy for the company. And then he also ran um, research worldwide. And, and so we got to kind of work with the researchers and understand the science and, and look at all the different things that were happening and then bring user experience design and think about this is where kind of speculative design comes in and tell stories about the future of like how technology could enhance our lives. So I had this combination of prototyping and then writing about it and helping, you know, writing speeches and directing kind of the, the stories that we told around the world. I got to travel um, all over the place and um, Craig Mundy would speak to world leaders and um, and to universities all over and it was just such a privilege um, to work with those people but also to be in that role where we're hopefully inspiring you know uh, people with a lot of resources to to use technology in a way that helps people and it sounds like um, as far as what you said in the beginning about wanting to work at that intersection of emergent technology and art and mm-hmm. that that uh, is a very good uh, fit. Oh yeah, for what you wanted. It was a total dream job, and I knew it couldn't last forever. But, you know, so so when when Craig retired, then I thought, oh, I'd been at Microsoft for ten years, and it was time to to make a switch. Um, and then was it at that time that you came to Amazon? Yeah. So um, I I knew I wanted to make a switch, and I didn't know exactly what I would would do, and I thought. Uh, the probability that I would have that kind of work where this niche where I'm doing speculative design and prototyping and thinking about the future is very unlikely. So I was exploring a bunch of things and talking to friends, doing this the kind of work that's interesting. Um, and, I, I, yeah, I got a cold call from Amazon, and I'm like, oh, you know, maybe well, it could be interesting. I'm, we'll see. And then um, after talking to me, they called me back with, saying, yeah, we have a job we think, we think you'd like, and it was working in the concept lab. Um, and I couldn't believe it, because I'm like, what? I, I get to do this kind of work still. So, um, yeah, that's how I came here. So if you were, so you're currently the creative director at the concept lab here at Amazon, and I'm wondering if you were to describe your job right now to other people, how would you do that? Yeah, um, I have a few ways I describe it um, in a way where user experience R&D lab, where we, we look three to five years in the future and we think about um, what, what, kind, what are customer needs in the future and what are also, how do we intersect that with technology trends and um, social trends and other things to uh, propose some very conceptual, like broad ideas of of um, where we might create some new customer experiences. Um, we also try and identify 
mm-hmm. but through either doing literature reviews or some customer research or other things and scenario development. Like what are some, if we look at an area to explore, what are some principles that we can use to um, help other others make good decisions about like what, what a good user experience is in this new, new area? Um, the other way I look at it is um, we will go, we'll look at some, some idea in the future and we'll, we'll decide if we want to make the case to um, say motivate some investment in that, either the technology or developing these new experiences. Um, so it's, it's all pr- pretty forward looking. When you're looking at these future technologies and coming up with concepts and prototypes, um, I find, so I've worked in teams where it's also been like forward looking or developing these technologies that might not be for the current time. Yeah. And there's always that question of, well, are we doing the right thing? Um, we don't have necessarily customer feedback. We don't know how well this is going to be received. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, like, when you're going through that process, how do you know that the ideas that you're looking at are the right ones, that you're on the right track? Mm-hmm. What sort of feedback or evaluations do you use? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and recently we've actually been looking at how we articulate that process better. Um, so there's um, one thing, one cool thing about design at Amazon is that we have this notion of working backwards from the customer. When I first came here, I'm like, okay, well, we'll see. This seems like a you know corporate Kool-Aid kind of thing. But it's actually uh, you know methodology that I would take wherever I go. And so I think it really helps because that's a currency in the company. Like you have to be able to articulate like what is the customer need for what you're proposing, and it can't be like a, a business need masquerading as a customer need. It has, and and one of the you know we often start out by asking ourselves five questions, and one of them is like how do you know something's a customer need? Now when we're looking way in the future, um, you you can't necessarily prove you know what the future is right. Um, in fact, that's something that, that I return to a lot. You can't prove the future. You, you can only build a case or a rationale for why you think that something is going to, you know, why your assumptions are going to be um, borne out or your hypothesis. And, and, and actually, we try and really be clear about defining you know, what are we, who's the customer, what what are we proposing and why, and then really stating what our hypotheses are and what our predispositions are. And the reason, it's kind of like showing your work in math. And the reason is because later you want to be able to interrogate that and go, were we right? So, so we have a process of gathering enough, you know, le- standing on the shoulders of other smart people, right? So looking at What's the state of the art? What research has already been done? Sometimes that's internal. Sometimes that's external. And um, and we'll start to de- develop a point of view. And once we have that point of view, then we're, we can start saying, okay, what do we? What's our hypothesis? And um, okay, given that we it, we really do treat it like you know we use a scientific method. Like okay, well, so if we want to we want to prove or disprove this, you know, and disproving is important too. You know what? What kinds of things could we do, and and maybe even if it's not proof, um, because maybe it's not you know large quantities of quantitative data, but 
are there are there things is there a way that we can get to where we say we believe we really believe that this is the case and then there would be further you know once there's enough investment to say yeah let's take this and make it into a product or something that's where you start proving things out but we we motivate the case to get to um to get to that point it sounds like you're know, using a lot of um, the same techniques you've had in math and applying it and structuring the design process. Yeah, yeah. Is there, is there an equivalent <laughs> to you? So I know, like, I, I took some, a few courses in advanced mathematics, but I think I found out very quickly uh, to what you mentioned that there were a lot of people there who were just so much smarter and that <laughs> it would be very hard for me to make a dent. And I know that a lot of times in math, they have those well, it follows logically from the previous that this is true. And uh-huh. I'm always left scratching my head because it didn't <laughs> follow logically to me. Um, are there, I guess, like when you're showing your work in design, Yeah. are there any um, sort of equivalence uh, moments when people have an intuition like it follows logically? Sure, yeah. Um, and that, that's, I think, the people who are really gifted in mathematics or other types of science or any endeavor. Like, you have, there's, um, it feels intuitive, right? There's a leap that happens in your mind where it, you can't necessarily backtrack and say, why do I feel like this? At least um, it didn't feel like you were deriving it, right? It felt, it feels more like you're discovering. Yeah. Um, and... And so I would say there are some equivalencies, but when you feel that way, it's because you there were there is actually something you can go back to and point to and say there there were some observations I had. There's some reason I feel this way or that I have this idea. Um, and so this often I'll encourage people to say like keep asking why, you know why do I believe this, and and not because. Not in order to say it's a bad thing, but to really try and break it down, and 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 question yourself as to what are your assumptions or what data are you using. Um, and in math, I'd say you know if you're saying, hey, here's this this theorem, you know, let's try and prove it. It's very very similar to saying, hey, I have. I have an idea or concept around something that would be cool. <laughs> okay, well, what do I mean by that? Like, get down to the definitions. You know, if I say it's going to be easy for somebody to do something, well, okay, easy how? Like, easy is a big word, right? What does that mean? And then who? For whom? Is it for people who are riding the bus? Is it for people who are at their desk? People who, who can hear? Um, so I think there's this this process of really breaking down into kind of the component parts, any type of um, kind of insight or, or like excitement you have about something and going, okay, how does that, how does that actually build itself and does that make logical sense? I can't imagine just pretending you have a five-year-old in front of you that is just constantly asking, you know, why, yeah, why, why? why? Mm-hmm. Well, and <laughs> I um, teach some workshops and working backwards, and there's there's a really great point that we try and make where we're trying to help people understand the difference between a customer problem and a solution. And, um, and so if you say, hey, you know, here's a person trying to do something, what do they need? Often... I'll usually get an answer like, oh, they need an app that does this. And I'm like, okay, well, 
let's think about like why do they need the app <laughs> like what is it and and if you keep asking why you do start to get at actually the real customer need but you can keep asking why too far and eventually you get to because i'm human and i just want to be loved <laughs> yeah maslow's hierarchy <laughs> it's like yeah. so then i'm like okay get to that point and then back up one or two and that's probably where you want to be if you're, you know, designing for human beings, like, <laughs> yeah, you gotta hit the right level of magnification. Yeah, and um, you know, and getting, I think there's um, there's a notion I think in designing things that don't exist that really don't exist yet. Of it's it's really hard sometimes to settle down into something concrete and and say, okay, I'm going to. If I say why or who am I designing for, I'm just going to pick somebody. You know, it might be for everybody eventually, but I need to have a story in mind. I need to have a, a hero character or a person, a real person with real needs and real context, in order to drive the the level of specificity that that will end up helping you be really creative, rather than just kind of pulling out the cliches. Yeah, that makes total sense, and I guess that's what storyboarding and yeah. a lot of those techniques do. Absolutely. When so, in your current role as um, director, you're managing, I would imagine, a bunch of creative people, mm-hmm. and so I've seen the process for managing developers and other sorts, but I have no idea what it's like to manage creatives. Mm. Is there are there special challenges that you need to? Uh, face or what is your process for managing creatives? Okay, <laughs> um, actually, I first would call out that like developers are super creative too, right? Like I, I really like my husband's an embedded um, software engineer, and he's also an oil painter, and and the the process that he uses for both is really similar. Um, and he, I learned early on in my fir- that first um, game company job working with developers like painters like they need some space you can't be in their face all the time there's they're holding so much in their minds they're holding whole i mean i don't want to say a house of cards but they're holding these structures and they're working it and and so they need you know space and so i'd say the same is true for people doing design or prototyping um i'd say the first thing is to um, the, okay, a lot of times I describe it as like I I make the circus tent, <laughs> and so there's this you know the the metaphor being like there's there's definitely a space that we're looking at, but it's big enough to be yourself and bring your own talents and your own background to um, achieving that goal. So setting a really really clear goal um, that is socialized to everyone that everyone understands and and they agree like yes we think this is a good thing to try and do i think is paramount and then having some constraints so that's kind of the circus tent idea that um they're they're reasonable constraints you have to have some and um if you combine the goal and the constraints again that's kind of math <laughs> um that what happens is if it's if you there's a sweet spot where it's not overly constrained, and it depends on the people involved too. Some people like a, 
a lot more constraint and less ambiguity. And some people like to be really free. But so I think um, that's kind of the philosophy. And then and then setting really like holding people to accountable for what they're committed to doing, but doing so in such a way that's really supportive. And and this idea that, hey, we're going to try this. We're going to try and learn this thing. If we learn that we were our hypothesis was wrong, that is still a very good outcome because we're able to stop doing that and we disprove this, and that's important. So I think... Um, so doing that, having that sense of accountability plus constraints, but in a supportive atmosphere where it's like underneath it all, there's this feeling that we believe in each other, we respect each other, we respect our differences and our strengths, and also acknowledge where we're not as strong, and that's that's cool, it's okay. Um, then there's there's this this feeling well like i can't i'm i'm safe to fail i'm safe to take some risks and and that's i think that's the most important thing um there's actually an organization that i'm involved with um outside of work called arts core and and um they work they have teaching artists that they put into schools especially underserved schools and then um, so the kids get arts education and they also have kind of a leadership program too but their whole philosophy is like why arts are important in school in addition to the STEM stuff is that you learn how to take risks you learn how to um, think laterally and think think beyond you know only being right all the time it's, in fact, being wrong can be really beautiful. And it's usually where we learn the most from. At least I find that to be true. Yeah. Um, and lately I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, my friend Peter I mentioned earlier turned me on to this um, podcast called um, Farnham Street. I don't know if you're familiar. I'm not, actually. You would love it. So it's this fellow, Shane Parrish, and he has um, like a weekly newsletter called Brain Food. So he interviews people about their thinking process. And recently he interviewed a woman named Annie Duke, who's um, a pro poker player and has been for decades. But she's also a cognitive psychologist. And so now she's been, you know, she wrote a book and she's been talking about, like, how to, you know, decision-making under uncertainty. And this idea that our... Um, so we have mental models of the world and learning is when we revise our mental model. And sometimes that can be very painful because we we internalize the mental model and associate it with our identity. And so when that's attacked, it, or we, we, it's, we get feedback that says you're wrong, you get very defensive. And that's what, there's one mentality or one kind of social construct where you're reinforcing the mental model that you exist and you, you really... Um, cling to that but the other one is reveling in being wrong and and um, having a social construct where we actually help call out our biases of like you know hey you know actually I think you're wrong about that and rather than going oh you're attacking me personally getting excited and saying really oh and 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 it's this idea that you have an opportunity to learn something new it's not being attached to the ideas it's it's how do you keep improving so 
Yeah, I think also that's something that being at Amazon or Amazon does a really good job at this idea that you can fail and that it's okay. Mm, um, yeah. Like when I first joined my team, um, there was this elastic load balancing team at AWS, and um, the year prior we had some pretty big outages, and so it was a lot of fixing. Mm. And our biggest outage was um, doing <clears throat> Christmas, and oh, for a whole day almost. And I remember, like the engineer, then I was talking to the engineer that caused it, and you know, some people asked me, like, "So what happened to that guy? You know, like, did they can him? Like, and, and it's like, no, like, we have a process for this. It's called the COE, the correction mm-hmm. of errors. Mm-hmm. Um, you write up what went wrong. You write up what could have been done to prevent it, and you, you know, write next steps of like how do you prevent it in the future. But this idea is not that you're assigning blame on anyone, and. Part of the reason is just because for something to fail, like it's gone through so many different processes, it's gone mm-hmm. through code reviews, yep. it's gone through somebody signed off on the deployment. So it's never also this additional idea of like failure is not something that you attribute to an individual, yeah. but it's a whole system. And mm-hmm. when there is a failure, it's not that we look for blame, but we look for learnings mm-hmm. because, as you mentioned, like there are great opportunities to learn. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean that's. It's something that um, I really believe in, and I I want to keep reinforcing. And um, I think you know I try and do this with art too, right? Like there's this idea of exploration there, at least in the art that I'm interested in. Something I'm always curious about is when it comes to art, um, whether that be art that you're looking at or art that somebody hands to you or a concept that someone's giving to you. Mm-hmm. How do you? Uh, go about evaluating it. For example, when I think about um, coding projects, they're sometimes very specific deliverables. Like, mm-hmm. we want a service that does X under Y seconds mm-hmm. with uh, ABC features. Mm-hmm. And then you can hand it to someone and say, like, look, I've delivered the service and it meets all those criteria. Mm-hmm. When I think of art, I th- think it becomes much harder. And Sure. So how do you... Um, look at art and evaluate mm. yeah well I think that's that's the beautiful thing about the way that art looks at the world and then you know you could talk for hours about the purpose of it um, so I, often I contrast design and art there are a lot of similar methodologies that I use and um, in both but I feel like at least for me, right, from my point of view, when I'm working on a design or I'm looking at a design, I'm thinking about it's a solution, right? We're looking for a solution for a certain problem. And it might be a little squishier than evaluating, you know, performant code or, but there's definitely, you can have that conversation around, is it doing the intention, the intended thing that um, the designer did? With art, you might ask yourself the same thing, like what was the artist intending? And But typically, you will have no idea, right? And depending on the t- context, right? Depend, I mean, maybe something you see, um, you know, a poster on, on the street or in an alley, or it might be something in a museum with a little bit more interpretation. Um, but I feel generally... From my point of view, art is opening the funnel and it's asking, it's more oh, like what if it's not trying to answer, 
it's asking and 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 so when um you know when i look at a piece of art i have i'm bringing my own context and my own interests of what i would like the art to do for me what i want it like what emotions i want it to light up for me or what dissonance i want it to cause and so um uh, I think, and, and then sometimes I'll think about it in terms of um, my own practice as an artist and what I would have done. And so I'm kind of evaluating against my own personal goals of my own work. Um, but uh, yeah, obviously it's a really deeply personal thing, but I think it has more to do with, it's more like holding up a mirror than to say, does this achieve a purpose? That makes sense. And if we take the Janet storyboard on this <laughs> and look at recent art or designs that you particularly like because you saw something in it, like can you talk about what those pieces were and why or what stood out? Well, maybe I can answer that question a little more generally because I'm seeing, I'm having a whole bunch of different um, examples come up. Yeah. But uh, some examples are of of work that I've been really interested in is that it, it actually makes you question your own reality a little bit. Um, and there was an exhibition um, called More Real, um, Art in the Age of Truthiness. And, um, and so they're, they're different pieces that um, are put together by artists who are really trying to provoke this feeling either perceptually like is like an optical illusion or auditory illusion or something or your perception of of how we document reality and what news is and things like that and so um i guess i would call out like the yes men are some artists who who do that a lot they actually do sort of social interventions and they'll pretend to be like shell oil executives and call a press conference and have it reported as news, um, and you know, be making a political point. Um, and and I'm not necessarily um, interested in political art. Um, I have my own preferences there, but but just that calling into question of like how we process information, how we see the world, and pointing out like maybe it's not all as cut and dried as we imagine. That's that's usually the stuff that I'm really drawn to, and it seems like something that's very topical in yeah. today's age. Yeah, for sure. I know that one uh, of the big projects that uh, you've started now here in Seattle is the Ghostly, uh, which is gone by you and your husband. Mm-hmm. And just to start off, could you describe in your own words like what the Ghostly is? Okay. And why you started it? <laughs> okay, sure. Um, yeah, so the grocery or the grocery studios, um, it's a space um, that we own. So about three years ago, we bought, we had the opportunity to buy a, a little old grocery store from 1929, a brick building, North Beacon Hill. And it was sort of this situation where life put something in front of you and it's something you've been dreaming about and you never ever thought you would be able to do. And it was always one of those things just like, oh, well, it's a nice fairy tale. But, and this, this became possible for us to do. And, um, and the shape of the building, it has 
about 1,100 square feet of open studio space, which used to be the grocery store proper. And it's uh, situated in a residential neighborhood. Some of our neighbors remember going there as kids. It's um, Beacon Hill is, is an amazing neighborhood, and it has so much history and soul. And so to, to be able to kind of become members of this neighborhood has been amazing. And, um, and so it's got this big open space, and then there's a little place to live upstairs as well. And so really the building is, um, we're renovating it right now, but when we're done, it will be our home. Um, and, and the studio is where we both do our artwork. Um, as I mentioned, my husband, Demi, is an oil painter, um, <clears throat> and he also collaborates with me on some more like um, interactive art. And so we use that for our space. But as soon as we got it, we realized wow, this, this is a place where we can open it up and have either collaborations or allow other people to use the space um, because it's such an incredible luxury, especially now with the way the development's going in Seattle and the cost of everything, to have um, a space where people can come and um, either exhibit their art or kind of experiment um, is really rare. So that's that's kind of what we do. I, we've been um, just trying things to see what feels right and see what the space is best used for. And after about a year and a half of that, we've done about 30 different um, events or exhibitions over in that time. It feels like things... I mean, I think we'll be, we'll op- we'll be open for a lot of things, but... The, the center of gravity is really incubating things, giving a safe place for people to try something that's stretching them creatively or technically and providing the f- support for them. So, um, yeah, we kind of look at it. It's a way to be art patrons in a way. Like we're really trying to be one of the, maybe it's like a nurse log for the community. <laughs> like, so because, because we both have decent jobs, we can afford to get some equipment that people need. Um, we both, you know, as a creative director, I feel like I can provide that kind of support where it's like I'm not telling somebody what to do, but if I hear, here's what I'm trying to do, I can really partner with them to help them um, realize that vision. And then we try and, and um, everything we do, have the whoever is coming leave cash positive so, um, you know, we'll have donations at the door or something and just give it to the artist and hopefully maybe some documentation of, you know, and feeling like, hey, you know, somebody believes in me or I tried this and I can build on it. I think that's absolutely wonderful that you guys are doing that. And um, looking back at some of the events that you've hosted over the past uh, couple of years, is there anything that stands out that you really feel like, wow, like this is exactly why we did this? Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of them. Um, I guess, but one recently, so I've become friends with um, an instructor at the University of Washington in the DX Arts program. Her name's Aphrodite Pizzara, and um, and she was teaching a class on mechatronic art, which like, oh, hello, that sounds amazing. And um, this, 
some of the students had never really done a public exhibition. And so she said, hey, at the end of the quarter, would you guys be cool? Like, could we, you know, do um, installations over a weekend and show the, the work? I'm like, yeah, that sounds insane because it was seven students and a lot of them doing first-time projects where they're the mechatronic part of the art, right? It's using some sort of either some sort of computer programming or kinetic aspects to the work um, and then mix with analog. It's like the hardest. It's the hardest stuff to pull off, especially if you don't know what you don't know. Um, and so anyway, we, uh, yeah, I took, took a day off work and we spent like a long weekend in helping install the work and we were about ready to start renovation, so we let them kind of have free run and, like, you know, use all rooms downstairs and mess things up if they wanted. We don't care. And uh, seeing the, the the students come, you know, in going, okay, I'm ready, or, like, kind of feeling very confident or cocky, and then seeing them go through, okay, let's actually try and get this to work, and oh wait, all my assumptions about the things that I actually hadn't tried, but they should work, aren't working, and you know, some of them like really getting into, like breaking down, and going through that whole process, and then picking themselves back up again, and saying, okay, we're gonna compromise, and here's the thing, how to get the piece to work going through that whole process to presenting their work to very lots and lots of people came um so you know very representing their ideas even if everything wasn't working the way they wanted it to coming out on the other side is like yeah this is very worthy um work to show and feeling like you they had permission like there was basically no way to fail completely only in their own eyes um we had um, some of the directors of the DX Arts program come and and other teachers, and they're they were saying like, there's no place that you know students can come do this kind of experimentation and feel supported, um, and you know without like tons of planning and legal and tons of cost. Mm. So I like going through that with all all those um, emerging artists. Like I'm like yeah, this is we need to do more of this. That's amazing. Um, and I'm sure the students and everybody that saw the exhibits really appreciated your work and your efforts in that. It, it felt like, yeah, I, I was kind of overwhelmed with how the, all the kind words. Um, because, I mean, in a way, we do this stuff, it's selfish. Like, you know, if you had a big space, like, hey, come over and make, you know, bring some cool people and make some cool stuff. And, like, this just happens in our living room. It's like, that's amazing. <laughs> In the past few years that you've been running the groceries, what um, lessons have you taken from either the logistics of having people come around and cycle around to just fixing up the place? Yeah. Um, we've learned so that like we have a lot of constraints on that space. It's in a residential neighborhood, and our number one thing is we want to be great neighbors. And we, we want to be there long term, and we love being in that community. So we don't want to ever do things that are at the cost of that relationship with the community. So my punk rock exhibit will probably... <laughs> well, I don't... Actually, I totally do punk rock exhibit. I mean, mm. I think there's ways to make those things work. Yes. Um, 
but typically like for seated shows we'll say hey no more than 50 people um, and that also is just the size of the space it feels good and because Demi and I both work full time you know we and we haven't had like a good layout to have public um, use of the space outside. We were like, um, you know, you can't rent it. Like we just host you, and it's more short term. Like it's a weekend or two. So I guess I'm. I would say we've learned like those constraints actually work in our favor, because I think a lot of times, at least when I was younger, you would think I would think about like oh, I'm going to try something and it's going to be get really big and get really popular. And like, and I think things can collapse under their own weight. And, and that's something I've learned, I think, you know, just doing a lot of different kinds of projects. And, and so having something where there's this steady state of, you know, it's never going to get huge. I mean, we might have, I'd love to have, you know, established artists come through and do residencies at some point. But... You know, even then, it would be sort of the secret side project or the kind of um, respite from going big. So staying small, I think, is something I've learned that can be really great. Um, I guess the other thing is that um, just the, the return on the effort, it's always rewarded, but some things are really harder to pull off and just understanding learning like okay like I my mom since my mom was an actress I grew up you know backstage in theater so I know what it takes to pull off a theatrical production but hosting one is very different and you know or dance right like you're looking at a good you know week or two at least of rehearsals in the space and putting down flooring that they need and working on the lighting and um so just understanding like there are some things that are really um, simple and don't require a lot of effort that have a big impact that we can do. But then there are other things that, you know, like and also like the DX arts installations, like that's a lot of work, but it's worth it, too. So I, I think it's the lessons I'm learning are really around balance. I think we get told certain things like when you start something, you should try to go, go, go and get really fast and get really big. Yeah. And sometimes that's not really necessary, and maybe sometimes that's also not what you want. Yeah, I, I mean, I yeah, I happen to believe that like unbridled growth, economic or otherwise, like is not always a good thing. Um, but having instead, you know, the goal, your goal in mind, like what are you trying to do here? And if and, and I apply a lot of design principles to how we operate that, right? So if we're saying, okay, our goal is to um, you know have make a great place where it feels feels really wonderful and supportive for the artist but then also for the community and and we want to push people's thinking a little bit and even expose the community to different ideas um, we have this um, we have this lecture series called the Academy of Reason and Wonder which um, was proposed by the, uh, my co-curator, Jed Dunkerley, who's an incredible person and artist himself. And, um, you know, that's an example of where I think there, it's more um, we've chosen for a goal for that is more continuous. So let's keep doing these, but not necessarily keep doing them bigger and bigger. I mean, we have 
we have um, lectures that have sold out in like about four hours. And we could say, hey, should we go bigger and get a bigger space? But our answer is no, we're just, we'll keep doing more of them rather than try and go big. Yeah, yeah there's more than one option. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's multidimensional. <laughs> exactly. And I saw in a Seattle Times interview <clears throat> when, about the ghostly, mm -hmm. um, when they were asking about it, you responded that I don't really need to think about what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Um, I want to make this into something special, make it better and leave it for others. Um, this will be my legacy. Yeah. And I thought, first of all, that's really beautiful. <laughs> and it's so great that you're doing it. And I'm wondering now that you've done it, you know, for a few years now, do you have a better idea of what you want your legacy to be, to be at mm -hmm. the grocery? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if that is still evolving. But, um, well, with the renovations we're doing, it we're putting, like, all our money into it and I'm selling another place to put into that um, which may not be financially like if I, if my goal were to be wealthy like that's probably not the best way to spend the money but but um, you know like the brickwork on the building was going to start coming down in a year or so it, so we're we're making the building it's going to outlive us way like the investments we're doing right now um, so just the structure of having that place, the, the main room will have power in the floor and the ceiling. It'll be outfitted so that it is sort of this room where almost anything could happen. Um, so, you know, the physical structure, I think, will be really supportive. We're building um, at some point. We probably will run out of money before we finish in the first phase, but we'll, we want to have an artist apartment and residency so that people can come stay. Um, and, you know, once Demi and I are gone, depending on, you know, who it goes to, I can imagine using the apartment upstairs that way. Um, so, you know, we haven't, I, I'm, right now we're being a little selfish and we're like, we don't want to do a nonprofit or something where we're obligated to use it in a certain way. It's very much at, at our own will, but I can imagine at some point, um, you know, when we're, we're getting ready to kick it or something, <laughs> there's going to be a time where it's like, okay, we've got to transition somehow. And, um, you know, making sure that, that there's, um, at least this is my vision now, you know, making sure that there's provisions in place so that whoever takes, um, over managing it would be able to continue that that idea where it's a place to incubate um, the arts and and across. I one thing I didn't mention before is like um, interdisciplinary. Uh, I th I think that's something I personally feel really really strong about, and I think Demi does as well. Where this cross pollination of things and um, is is where like a lot of the richness comes from. So. And I think uh, two of you are also good representations of that. A developer that paints and yeah. an artist that um, does everything else. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to attending future ghostly events, and I'm Thanks. just really looking forward to what you guys do with that space. Thank you. Yeah, I I look forward to that too. And I'm you know it's I'm I'm hoping too that we can be I, I know Demi thinks this way like being kind of a model of 
you know, you don't have to be a big fancy institution to contribute to the community. Like if you have a little space or if you have some resources, you can you can make that space in your life to, you know, for to bring in other people and and share that. So, um, you know, we're hoping that that can continue. Maybe we see way more more places like that happen. Yeah, that would be lovely. Uh, Janet, I have more questions, but we're getting to the end of the interview. And so I'm going to transition to my closing question. Sure. And the first question that I've been asking people is about inspiration and what is something that's inspired you recently? So this could be a book, a person, a story. Yeah. Um, I think I'd, I'd call out what I mentioned before, the, this interview that Shane Parrish had with Annie Duke. Um, it's been really resonating. And just her book, um, I think it's, uh, I'm going to mess up the name, but I think it's um, getting getting closer to being right by being wrong. And um, her the way that she embraces both the, the science behind how we learn and how we our, our biases as you know mammals <laughs> and um, but also how we work together socially and how we can make help help each other be better um, and this this un, unending and unbounded curiosity about things I just I really love that I think that um, it's something that that I want to I think she was able to articulate something that I've felt and haven't really put into words myself so I think the best books and maybe also art does that is that it draws something from inside of you that you know to be true or mm. you feel like is true yeah but then it crystallizes that yeah yeah I'd I would I would agree with that um, and I think um, I'd say another one that does that another book is um, called white fragility and uh, you know it's about it's about white fragility and social justice, but it also calls out like our our biases and how we perceive the world and and what we don't, you know. I I'm um, you know of the European diaspora, <laughs> and so like I I have a lot of white privilege, and I I like to think of myself as an open-minded person, but just really um, being humbled in terms of. I think, you know, understanding how how I move about the world and through the world is so different than than other people, and this um, this idea of um, really trying to not being able to perfectly empathize, but pursuing that—that's something like that. That is also very, very inspirational to me. Yeah, and it's I think perfect empathy is hard to get you, maybe impossible I, to get you, but yeah. uh, regardless of that, I think it's worth doing. And Absolutely. And I, I, it's that process and it, you're, you know, we're never going to be perfect, but that it's the intention of, of learning constantly and revising what your assumptions are. Um, and, but with the intention of, you know, or for, I mean, I, I, my underlying feeling is like, we're, you know, we're all human mammals on this planet. And, you know, the we have um, the people who are um, have have structures around them and and systemic support for certain power structures that are not equal. Like I, I very much want to 
to um, dismantle those as, as I can. And, um, and, and just as a person, I, it's kind of like, okay, this is going to be a dumb analogy, but you know, you know how, like when you look into the sky and at the stars and you just feel, you feel your place as this small creature on this planet. And somehow that feels right to acknowledge that and to be humbled that way. I feel like there's a lot of ways that we need to do more of that socially too. Yeah. I think it's just a good reminder. I always feel like astronomers must be the most humble people in the <laughs> world, like every day just contemplating the vastness of everything that there is. Yeah. My next question, I'm wondering as a human mammal, what is something that people might find unusual or they might not know about you? Hmm. Um, I guess, I guess one thing that comes to mind, you know, if, if you look at like the story we've been telling about me or, you know, that my history, you would think, Oh, this is a, like a really strong person maybe who, you know, has some confidence. Um, and that I think what, might be surprising to people to know is that I actually have like panic disorder and I've had, and I grew up as a really, really anxious child. Mm. Um, my dad passed away when I was nine and we were best friends and, Mm. um, that really shaped me. And that must have been hard. Yeah. Looking. Yeah. I think it was hard, but it also like, I remember lying in bed when I was nine um, realizing my own mortality, and I think that was kind of a young age to do that, and it and it shaped the way that I live my life. But um, so, and then I also kind of had a response where I was just afraid of everything for many years, and and then as an adult, I kind of got hit with kind of having a panic attacks in certain situations, and so uh, I think that's. I don't, I feel like it's, I really understand it now as a condition of my biology and, um, and my kind of cognitive patterns and something that, that I've worked on. And so I live with it, but, uh, I, I think I have a really, um, deep appreciation for people who are living with things that you can't see yet they're they're battling with all the time um and and maybe overcoming the things that seem like you there's they're insurmountable but you a few years later if you have some patience and you can work through it you have that support if you're lucky enough to um you can find yourself in a very different situation yeah well first of all thanks for sharing and i think what you said it resonates a lot with me. I think in our culture especially, it's easy to go into the hero narrative of, yeah. you know, here are the people who, there's all this hardship. Exactly, but they just flesh it off. But I've found in my experience, there's very little, actually no one that I know that is Michelangelo's David, like just carved out of stone and that's yeah. how they were. It's so many things that, that happen behind the scenes that they overcome and I think it's actually a lot more richer of a story to know that it's somebody that you can relate to, that somebody that has all these, the same sort of human hardships that has managed to overcome them. 
mm-hmm. and then still go on to do the things that they do. Mm-hmm. Overcome or live, you know, manage them or live with them. Or manage way, them, right? exactly. Yeah. 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 My um, next question is, are there any beliefs or principles that uh, you live your life by? Yeah, I guess, you know, one that we've talked about a bit is this idea that, um, you know, my personal belief is is that human beings were just, you know, one of the one of the creatures living on this planet, and we don't have any special powers or anything, and that um, we are products of of our biology, and um, yet there's there's always something that we can't know or understand even about ourselves, and so that gives the this little opening to the mysterious um, or the spiritual, I guess. Um, so I definitely live that way. And, and as a person, like I, I don't believe I know anything or sorry, everything. Some, actually, I don't really know anything at all for sure, except for math, you know, except for the things that can be proved logically. That's it. Um, and love those. That's the other thing. Um, and that's a, yeah, that kind of um, over that that stands over everything else. Um, I guess the other thing I believe, or that that's helpful for me, is thinking. And Annie Duke actually talks about this a little bit: is thinking in probabilities. And so when I'm faced with something, um, I think about my future. I first of all try and keep as many options or create opportunities. Um, as many opportunities as I can. Um, I don't have to walk through those doors, but I can. I have options. And then when I'm faced with a specific decision or something I'm worried about or looking at the outcome, I look at all the different outcomes. So I think of them as kind of quantum probabilities. That and then you know the waveform hasn't collapsed yet. Like it's and so it's really helpful as a thought experiment and an exercise kind of an emotional exercise to go through. Okay, what's the worst going to happen? It's not linear, but like, what are all the different probabilities? And, you know, okay, maybe it's a really small probability, but if everything, the worst things happen, if I've worked that through in my head, then I kind of know, ah, well, okay, I can somehow find a way through that. So that that's kind of a principle that I use a lot. Yeah, I think this is the first time I've heard the term quantum probabilities when describing thinking about the future and I love it <laughs> it's really helpful yeah and have like a little visualization of wave, waveforms and stuff but it's like and possibilities yeah. popping in and out of existence yeah and it's like we don't know and and you know there and there's some that are probably more likely than others and you know and just kind of being able I have kind of a surfing metaphor too you know it's like I'm gonna take what I'll be ready for what comes, you know, at least that's how I try. There's one thing that's coming up next right now, which is my very last question. Yeah. And so this is open-ended. Is there anything that we haven't talked about at this point that you would like to mention or highlight now? I guess, you know, just reflecting on our conversation, since it's sort of been historical a bit, um, I would say... I think it's really important to try and and learn more about what you love and what what um, what makes you happy as a person, and and follow that and find ways to follow that. And it's not linear. Um, 
And, you know, whether that's like a career thing or it's just what you're doing every day, you know, finding, not giving up to try and find that. And even if you're not able to do something that makes you happy eight hours a day or 12 hours a day, that that um, there are little part places you can kind of look for that um, and, and try and steer it slowly. I get maybe that's a privileged position, but but I feel like having that, like at least knowing what you love, I think is, is really important. Yeah. Take some time, figure out what all those possibilities are before all the waveforms collapse. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's those, well, actually I, I think I wrote, um, a little post about how, how, like how we found out about the grocery and, and, um, and I actually, so I had had a dream about a year, well, maybe not a year, maybe six months before I had a dream that I was in a, a space and all these different people were doing things. And and so clearly I was thinking about that. And I, I feel like those, even, it's not like you manifest stuff. I don't really believe that directly, but I do think the small behaviors and choices we make every day can steer your life in a direction and if you know where you want to go or what that is even if it's not you can't articulate it in words if you can you can increase the probability that something like that will be available to you at some point yeah you subconsciously you know work towards it yeah everything that you do yeah i know that um the creator of Dilbert, he was in an interview, and he has this method where something that he wants, every morning he'll write that maybe on a full page of paper. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just like I, um, like, I want to date this person. And he'll write that for like a week at a time, and then it happens. And it's not necessarily mysticism or anything, but more just that because you've imprinted in your mind that this is the destination that you want to get to. Yeah. Yeah, and I, th- I, I do believe... You know, I probably wouldn't be that literal, but yeah, if you've you've got a future state in mind, and you you have you really want that, and you believe that can happen, um, and you give yourself permission to go to go there, then I do think even if it's not conscious, um, that that your behaviors can can help align those stars a little bit. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to see the future states that <laughs> you and the grocery will go to. But in the meantime, thank you so much for talking to me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Hey, everyone. This is Kevin again with just a few more notes before you go. First of all, if you've enjoyed the show and would like to support it, you can do so by leaving a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcast. That really helps me out a lot. If you didn't like the show, you can keep your opinions to yourself because nobody cares. I'm kidding. If you didn't like it, or if you have any suggestions or feedback, you can email me at feedback at folkstories.org. That email is also included in the show notes, as with the show notes. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Janet, and take some time to check out the ghost Grey when it opens up after renovations, because it is truly a remarkable space. That's all for now. So until next time, I hope you have some great conversations.